The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. This is the Book of Serenity, K60, Iron Grinder. The introduction. Nose high, each has a powerful appearance, footsteps firm and solid. One may study, one may study Dragon Woman Chan. When you penetrate the ungraspable dynamic, for the first time you see the method of a true master. But tell me, who is such a person? Iron grinder Leo went to Guishan. Guishan said, old cow, you've come. Iron Grinder said, tomorrow on Taishan, there's a big gathering and feast. Are you going to go, teacher? Guishan lay down, sprawled out. The Iron Grinder immediately left. Verse, <clears throat> success in a hundred battles accomplished, growing old in great peace, serene and gentle, who's willing to trouble to contend, to jade whip, golden horse, or idle all day, the bright moon and pure wind enrich an entire lifetime. So this koan involves Leo Tiemo, who is one of our, the women ancestors that we chant each day. And, uh, you know, in the on Sundays, we chant, the, the, on alternate Sundays, the lineage, starting with the Buddha, going down to, um, through Dogen, Mozumi Roshi, Dada Roshi. And so that's the mind-to-mind lineage that we have as, as our lineage. And then on the other Sundays, we chant the list of women ancestors, which is not a lineage per se, because there isn't a direct link between each woman ancestor, female ancestor on that list, but they're all historical people who were teachers in their own right, um, going back into India, China, and Japan, and down into the U.S. And then on the, on the daily liturgy, in the, when we chant the Heart Sutra, we chant a very condensed version of that lineage um, with only a few names. We intersperse the some of the uh, lineage names, Dogen, you know, down to Dido Roshi and so on, and then some of the women ancestors. So we blend those together. And in the Buddha Hall, which serves both as a Buddha Hall, and traditionally there would be different main halls for each of the Buddha Hall, uh, where services were conducted, Dharma Hall, where talks were given, and then the Sodo, where where Zazen would take place, and we would do it all in one place. But the Buddha Hall serves as, um, as it does, and the altar on the back serves as what would normally call it, be called a kaisando, um, which is the ancestors' hall. So that's why we have the, the ancestors' photographs, and, which again includes our own lineage, Dadaroshi, Mazumaroshi, Bayan Hakujin, Soto lineage master, Koryu and uh, Yastani Roshis, uh, both of whom Mazuma Roshi studied with and from which we get the, the Linji lineage. 
Thogan, and then some of the women ancestors as well. So again, we're blending those. So Leo Tiemo was a student of Guishan, and so she was born in, in the late 8th century. And um, there's not a lot known about her, but more than some others. Um, it says she was a solitary and serious child, raised by her father, and left home, and visited many monasteries and convents, so she was drawn to the, the Dharma. She went to Chang'an, which was a very important center in ancient China, was ordained, and then again continued to wander as a pilgrim, went to different, studied with different teachers. She was known as a, um, an adept, a, a, a clear-eyed person, and had a kind of fierceness about her. It said that she came to visit a master named Ziu, and who said, I've heard of iron grinder Leo. She was called that because she was tough and would, I guess, grind you down. <laughs> they say you're not easy to contend with. Is that so? And iron grinder said, where did you hear that? And Zihu said, it's conveyed from left and right. And she said, don't fall down, master. And so he drove her out of the room. Another master commented on this saying, Zihu's stick had eyes. He had the authority to take the staff in his hands. Beneath Iron Grinder's skin was blood. She left Zihu, she let him wield the stick, but though she appeared soft, she had steel-like strength. She, she went on to study with Guishan, who was a, a very well-known teacher, who came down through Matsu, Baijang, and it said that they were extremely close to a student and teacher. In fact, she established her training center just down the road from where Guishan was teaching. And so it says they enjoyed a close and, and, and intimate relationship, Dharma relationship. And it said that this was their last encounter. And, you know, I was thinking about how, you know, last Sunday I talked about knowing and not knowing, and quoted from Wendell Berry, who said, one of the forms, one of our forms of ignorance is all that we do not know, right? Most that exists in the world, we don't know. We don't even know that much about our parents and other people. We don't know what anybody else actually feels directly inside of themselves. We often don't know a lot about ourselves. And so I was thinking about how much we don't know about our own history as Buddhist practitioners, about the Buddha Dharma. Early on in India, recording history was not, it's said by scholars, was not something that was valued. And so there was very little, and of course in the Buddhist time, there was no um, written recorded history, it was all oral. And so it didn't get written down until later after the Buddha died. And so there's a great deal needless to say, that is not known. And so what does come down to us, for instance, in the sutras, and for instance, in the sutras that contain some sexist and even misogynist language, and the scholars believe that that was added in almost certainly after the Buddha died, because the Buddha was very clear about the equality, sameness of men and women within Buddha nature, but also in terms of capacity to study and train and become enlightened, and, and that men and women were 
disciples within his sangha, whatever their gender was, were practicing and realizing themselves and teaching. That's well established. But that the inclusion of those negative comments, which, again, are not thought to have come from the Buddha and really are inconsistent with Buddhism and the Buddha's teaching, kind of codify a view that gets passed on. And that's what needs to change, what we're changing. But it made me think about all that we don't know. And I was going back to a, 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 a book written by a Buddhist scholar that's about the um, role of families in Indian monasticism. And his sort of thesis is that most of what we know about early Buddhism and the monastic rules, which is the Vinaya, come from one school, the Theravadan school, which is sort of the sort of the main existing school that has come down from those early various schools that existed in the time of the Buddha and, and in subsequent years that all had their own particular versions of the Vinaya, although they originally came from the Buddha. And so what the scholar did was drew from these other collections of Vinaya and saw what were they laying out as the rules that the ordained men and women needed to follow. Because in those Vinaya, you see what the ordained monastics were living and what they were how they were asked to deal with different things that were arising. So, for instance, um, there's a whole section on pregnant nuns and nuns with children. And so there are Vinaya that say that if a woman was ordained and it later became clear that she was pregnant when she was ordained, but she didn't know, then it, that was considered a minor infraction. Right? We might think that would be a kind of a big deal, right? Maybe like, you can't do this. It was considered a minor infraction. If, no, if she did know, if she did know that she was pregnant and didn't reveal it before she was ordained, that was a minor infraction. If she didn't know and was ordained and then realized she was pregnant, that was not an infraction at all because she didn't know. So no, there was no wrongdoing. And so then, but what to do with the child? And so there are Vinaya that say that the, the ordained nun will give birth to the child and will be um, assigned an, a nun attendant who will help her during that period of time when she's nursing and you know, needs extra help. And that's all within the convent, all within the community. And that when the child is weaned, and that then she would, the mother would give the child to her family to be taken care of. And I guess, of course, she could leave if she wanted to take off her ropes and return to lay life. But that the Vinaya provided for her to both have the child, to raise the child to a point where she could then, you know, return her, the child to the family and carry on with her religious life. And so, and there, there are all kinds of things like this. <laughs> and so his, his sort of point is looking at what the, the, the extant material that we have now, and looking back, things seem very black and white. It was this, it was not that, it was very clear and sort of very absolute. And what he's drawing from these different phenomena, it doesn't really look like it was like that. I mean, there were, you know, there were boundaries and there were rules and so on, but that, I mean, to think about also, 
what kinds of things would happen like that, right? And, and then how would that be dealt with? And we might think, we might be led to think that they would be dealt with in a very sort of absolute sort of this way or the highway kind of way. But a lot of these Vinaya point to it being, there being more latitude than that, more flexibility. And so it just made me think, what don't we know? You know, how much do we not know about what was actually happening within these communities? Because we have to rely on, on what we have and what has been translated and what has been communicated and so on. So. And of course, an important part of that is, you know, who gets to tell the stories? Who are the record keepers of these histories? And so if the record keepers were primarily men or male monastics, then what stories did they consider important to tell and what stories didn't they tell? What were they paying attention to? What were they not paying attention to? And that's why it's so important to have a, a range of record keepers and storytellers and history makers, most important of all. So here, Leo Tiemo goes to see her teacher, Guishan, and she comes in and he says, old cow, you've come. So he called himself a water buffalo. He called her an old cow. So it seems to be a friendly um, thing. <laughs> right, we might think, well, you know, what, what is going on there? <laughs> And so she goes to see him, and the footnote to that says, they've already met. They've already met. And of course, she was his disciple, so we know that. But what is this really saying? When we meet the teacher, what are we meeting? I remember when I had first started, had first started seeing students in interview, and I was in New Zealand, and I think that was the first time when I was actually seeing students kind of on my own, and I was in the interview room, and, and I couldn't hear the call, but I heard, you know, the, the footsteps going to the line, and I was, I was nervous, I was insecure, I felt like, you know, who am I to be sitting on this seat? And the only way I could sort of, you know, stay on that seat was I thought, they're not coming to see me, they're coming to see the Dharma, which is true. They're coming to see the Dharma. So, so my job is to make sure that that's what they meet. To meet the Dharma, we have teachers, right? That's why as important as the Buddha and all of these ancestors are, are living teachers, the teachers that teach us directly, even, if, even some of them are deceased, but they're alive for us. But particularly the living teachers, because they, they we can study. You know, when I first came here, I studied my teacher. I watched him, I observed him, right? to see how, how he, not only how he taught, but how did he live? How did he relate to people? When we come to face to face, are we meeting the teacher? Are we meeting the Dharma? Are we meeting ourselves? What's it all about, after all? And what is the teacher meeting? In the Mountains and River Sutra, the Dogen speaks about what Dharashi called Dharma fishing. Dogen says, from ancient times, wise people and sages have often lived on water. When they live on water, they catch fish, 
They catch human beings and they catch the way. For a long time, these have been elegant activities on water. Furthermore, there is catching the self, catching, catching, being caught by catching and being caught by the way. When a teacher has a disciple, is this not catching a fish, catching a person, catching water, or catching the self? The disciple seeing the teacher is the teacher. The teacher guiding their disciple is meeting a true person. This is really pointing to both the essence of the student-teacher functioning, dynamic. You know, it is a relationship. I kind of hesitate to use that word because that word has comes with so many connotations and so many histories and associations and expectations. Of course, it's a relationship, but it's, it's something in and of itself. And Dogen here is making that very clear. And it functions in different ways, on different planes. In one moment, at different times, how it evolves. To meet the teachers, to meet the way, to really enter the mind ground of the teacher. But not just the teacher, the lineage, the Buddha, Buddha nature, the Dharma, all beings. And so in that sense, even before we come before the teacher, we have already met. And I think Dogen's teachings and the truth of this is really important because, you know, there's a reason why we do face-to-face teaching during Zazen. So it's coming directly, not just from Zazen, but within Zazen. And that we sit on that Doksan line or that Daisan line and we continue our meditation. And then we go into that room within our meditation. And we do prostrations because we're asking. And then we receive. And what is it that we're meeting? And then we hold that in confidence. In a way, it's nobody else's business. It's yours. It's mine. It only exists for the student in that room. That's it. This is different. This is important. And it's different. And that that sets up a kind of poignancy, aliveness, alertness. You know, I never went into Doksan casually. Ever. Right? I was always like, mm. <laughs> you know? And in the beginning, that was laden with, you know, a lot of anxiety and nervousness and insecurity and, you know, wanting approval and lots of things, you know, that I had to kind of work, see and work my way through and burn off some of that unnecessary stuff. But I never went in. It's like, oh, yeah, here we go again. Right? Been here, done this. Never. It was always alive. And so she comes and Guishan says, Oh, Cal, you've come. This comes up a lot in the teachings. It sounds like a very, it's a very ordinary, oh, you're here, you've come, you've arrived. But in many, many places in the teachings, that has significance. 
you've come. What is the Tathagata? The one thus come. It also means the one thus gone. In the Vimalakirti Sutra in Manjushri, when the Buddha finally convinces somebody to go check on Vimalakirti who is sick, and Manjushri arrives, Manjushri says, I mean, Vimalakirti says, Manjushri, welcome. You are very welcome. There you are, without any coming. You appear without any seeing. You are heard without any hearing. And Manjushri says, Householder, it is as you say, who comes, finally comes not. Who goes, finally goes not. Why? Who comes is not known to come. Who goes is not known to go. Who appears is finally not to be seen. Now this can sound like, you know, some sort of secret communication. I was thinking about this. You know, it's really using ordinary language to to say an ordinary thing and then to examine that to the depths of its implications, and not just its implications, but rather, perhaps more importantly, our assumptions of something that's so simple, so ordinary, so self-evident, that we don't examine it. We don't even know that there are any assumptions. Oh, you've come. And we don't even think about what, do, what does that actually mean in my mind? What assumptions am I making about arriving and departing? If we think of it in terms of birth and death, what are the assumptions we make about a child being born into this life and somebody dying away from this life? Well, we, we just think they're born. Hallelujah. How wonderful. They've died. I'm so sad. But why? What is it that has been born? Why are we sad when someone dies? What is the one who has died? When we fear our own death, or we fear death, right? Or we fear aging, or we fear sickness, what is it that we're afraid of? Is it in the abstract? Is it that I am going to experience this? So this language is really pointing at something in a way very ordinary and bringing it out and using it in a way that's startling. It's as you say, the one who goes does not. The one who comes does not. Who comes is not known to come. So what are the assumptions that we make in coming and going? Well, clearly that someone is arriving. Someone has been born into this life. Someone has passed away. We call that the self. But that in coming, there is someone who is coming. There is someone who is living. There is someone who is maintaining continuity, who is holding together some essence, some personhood, something substantial and solid that is me and you and continues in time and space. Why does that matter? Why is that an issue? 
Well, when we are delighted, when we grieve, when we feel threatened, when we're angry, what is that all about, actually? Who is that all about? When the mind exists undisturbed in the way. But the mind itself is fine. Who is it that's disturbed? When somebody offers you a criticism, some of you have service positions this week, right? Every session, every day. Students, residents, people here for session <clears throat> take a responsibility to help make this particular form of magic work, right? And so you have to be given some instruction, enough, and then you're just thrown in. Do it. Perform that. And then you receive corrections, right? To help you develop it, to help you, in a sense, become more comfortable, to help you enter into it more completely so that you can begin to forget the instructions, to help you let your activity and the function of it blend so nicely within the, the many that it begins to disappear. You begin to disappear. Is that what you experience when you're receiving a correction? <laughs> right? right? It's like, it makes me remember one time I was going to the, the TSA at an airport, and I was called out randomly, they said. You're randomly being called out f to be, you know, taken apart. <laughs> and I said, you know, and this woman was doing, I was just sitting there, and I said, you know, this doesn't feel random at all. And she said, oh, yes, sir, it's right. I said, it doesn't feel random. It feels very particular to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I could see that she was like going in a direction I wasn't intending. So I, I backed. She was getting upset and, I don't know, something, something was getting ready to happen. So I, <laughs> I reeled it in. <laughs> Coming and going. That's part of the challenge of practice is... You know, there are obviously words and concepts that we don't quite understand because they're not in English, so we have to learn what they mean. There are other words that are, are in English, and we might assume we understand what they mean, but we have to actually study them from the point of Buddhism to understand what does this mean in the Dharma. It will mean some of the same thing that it means in English, but it will have other meaning, certainly. We should just know that ahead in advance and want to know how is this actually being understood in the Dharma. And then there are ordinary things that we don't think about twice that are being brought out as teachings or pointers. And we might think, we might not think at all, but we should. Because, and this is a good case, because it's a perfect example of how the whole koan rests on that. Old cow, you've come. Has she come? Has she arrived? What does she, how does she respond? She says, tomorrow on Taishan, there's a big gathering and feast. Are you going, teacher? Taishan's like 600 miles away. So today you'd have to think it's in Chicago and all planes, trains, buses, and cars are grounded. Are you going tomorrow? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs>
So how does she respond when he says, old cow, you've come? Does she respond with, yes, I have, no, I haven't? Affirming or denying, does she approve or disapprove? She appears soft, but has steel-like strength. She appears to have great strength, but is actually soft and easy. So she asks her teacher, are you going to this feast? Impossibly far away. And the footnote says, this poison is like smoky fire burning. It seeps in quietly. You don't notice. Begins to choke off all the oxygen. Brings you into a state of not coming. There's a poison that deadens us to life, and there's a poison that brings us to life. Why are these two adepts doing this? Ostensibly, they're alone. You know, it's like, how does anybody even know about this dialogue? Right? I mean, did they have this dialogue and then go out and start telling everybody about it? You know? Seems unlikely. <laughs> Maybe we'll never know. Maybe it doesn't really matter. <laughs> But taking it as it is, why are they having this conversation? Well, we could say for our benefit. We could say so that they can continue to meet each other again. Having already met, they can meet each other again for the first time. They can meet each other in the unseen. They can meet each other in the unborn. They can dance and move within the primordial. When as students, we remember to be mindful, we remember to, we practice letting go, non-attachment, we return to the precepts, our practice of compassion, when we reflect on impermanence and karma and dependent origination, these profound teachings. This is an essential stage of practice, right? It's deliberate, it's conscious, it's intentional, it's essential. And all of that is to move forward more and more so that all of that intentionality and deliberateness, it's not that it disappears, it's that it's just digested, it's integrated, it's functioning now. It's like anything that we learn, develop our skills in, in the beginning is awkward, we're not very good, we're clumsy, we, we trip over it. And then we start to develop some facility and a lot of that necessary consciousness, self-consciousness begins to drop away, and then we begin to fly. And all of that training and the, the, you know, the method and the techniques all sorts to disappear, right? I've told this story about when I was taking a conducting class in college when I was studying music, and I went to see this Sir George Solti, one of the great compo uh, conductors of the time, Chicago Symphony, I believe. And when I came back, my teacher says, how was it? I said, it was amazing. It was incredible. He didn't do any of the stuff you're teaching us. <laughs> and he said, ah, he's a maestro. <laughs> and I thought, if I don't do any of that, am I a maestro? <laughs> no. So are you going to go, teacher? And Guishan lay down and sprawled out. Just that. The footnote says, now he extricates himself midway. What is that? The middle way is not a balance, although balance is good. It's not a blending. Dada Roshi said, it's not like 
mixing, you know, black and white paint and getting gray. It's something else. He extricates himself midway. He frees himself in the middle way. He frees himself from all extremities. Old cow, you've come. There's a feast on Taishan. Are you going? He lays down and sprawls out. He doesn't settle in coming or going, affirming or denying. The middle way is not an in-between, emerging or combining. But what is that? What is he showing? How is he, re- how is he responding? What's so nice about this is it's sort of a, an embodiment of responding without effort, and yet very directly. It's not ambiguous. And so in that way, we shouldn't be fooled by his laying down and sprawling out. In a way, he's walking right into her heart of being after she just walked right into his, having already met, they meet again. And then she left. Are you going to go, teacher? Grishan lays down and sprawls, and she leaves, turns around. It's complete. They understand. The meeting is utter. There's a grace in this, a beauty in this, and not needing anything more. In the poem, Pongjur says, success in a hundred battles accomplished, growing old in great peace. And of course, he's talking about the practice, all the years of training and practice and wandering and challenging and being challenged. A hundred battles accomplished now, growing old in, in great peace. And the footnote says, at peace in one's house, enjoying one's work. You know, we say this a lot. It's important because we have to hear it again and again and again because it's so contrary to our what we believe in, which is that the obstacles that we face and the way we face them do not have to be battles. We can make them battles, and we do. Inevitably, we do, and we will until we don't. And for most of us, we're pretty stubborn. I mean, come on, let's face it. <laughs> we're pretty stubborn, right? We, we have habits, we, we like them, we cherish them, we keep, go, we keep them going. And usually when we stop battling is when we get worn out from fighting. We just plain get worn out. Or bruised and bloodied. That can work too. Doesn't have to wait that long. We don't have to wait that long. But it seems that oftentimes we have to, we have to be convinced, <laughs> right? That continuing the old way is no longer viable. And the stubbornness is it seems to take us a while. It certainly took me a long time. And it's ongoing, because those habits can still appear, that that is no longer worthy of my energy. It's no longer worthy of your faith. And so to not deny, to not cling, to not blame, to not give up, not being defeated, 
Now you can give up. Giving up, now let yourself be defeated. Completely defeated, collapsed. The breath knows how to breathe. Why does it get so constrained and confined? I thought again of Martin Luther King's speech on loving your enemies that I spoke about recently. He says there's a final reason. He's laying out all the reasons that Jesus talked about loving your enemies. He says there's a final reason, and it's this. Love has within it a redemptive power. A power there that eventually transforms individuals. It changes. It changes people. It changes minds. changes the world. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, and we have to include ourselves, right? We have to include ourselves in this as the enemy. Because if we hate our enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. So when we battle ourselves, that will not lead us to a state of peace. It leads us to more battles. And the fact that what I just said is we can get to a point where we start to give it up. That moment is what begins to bring us peace. If we hate our enemies, we have no way to redeem and transform them. But if you love your enemies, have compassion, loving kindness, practice metta, Patience. Then you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption, transformation, change. And he says, so you just keep loving people and keep loving them, even though they're mistreating you, even though they're hard to love. And again, include yourself. When you find yourself a little hard to love, a little hard to be compassionate to, a little hard to be patient with, And if that doesn't help, just plain and simple, think of it in terms of karma. What we do with our thoughts and our words and our actions strengthens that very action and, and importantly, the thing that we're reacting to. So when anger arises and we respond to anger, we're strengthening not only anger that resides within us, but our response to it with more anger. We're in a sense confirming that that will be ever more at the ready. Anger will be ever more at the ready as a reaction, and our response with anger will be ever more at the ready. That's a very logical thing you can think about and reflect on. Does that make sense? Then Dr. King says, there's another reason why you should love your enemies. And that's because hate distorts the personality of the hater. This is the mind state. The personhood. We usually think that what hate does for the individual hated, or the individuals hated, or the groups hated. We think of who we're hating. But it is even more tragic. It is even more ruinous and injurious to the individual who hates. You just begin hating somebody, and you will begin to do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate. You can't walk straight. You can't stand upright. Your vision is distorted. There's nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. And I would wholeheartedly agree with that. It's a painful thing to see. In a way, it's an ugly thing to see. I mean, think about when somebody's face is just relaxed and then they smile. That's just 
Beautiful. What is that? Right? I mean, what is that? <laughs> it's just muscles moving in a particular direction, and yet the person's face becomes beautiful. Now, you could say, that doesn't make sense. Why should that be so? It's so. And when we go in the other direction, and we move different muscles, and of course, we're not just moving muscles, something is arising within us that causes us to smile, that causes us to laugh, right? That's what, that's what is moving us. In the same way that when we're moved to anger, moved to hatred, something is moving. That's what we're experiencing. It's not just a facial expression. And so if we want to change the river's flow, we have to change the flow of the mind and heart. We can get caught in a strong current. We can get angry at the river for dragging us downstream. We can try and stop the river. Good luck with that. We can step out of the river. That can be extremely helpful. But the river's still there. You can still fall in. Or we can stop hating the river and realizing that its direction and its strength in one moment is due to its own repetitive habits of mind and emotion, and at the same time to shift, and it's taking you to the ocean, home. It's the same river. And also that the bright moon and pure wind can enrich a whole lifetime. which ultimately is what we seek, a life enriched. The footnote to that says, enjoyment of this is inexhaustible. You'll never wear it out. It's like compassion. You never run out. How about that, right? We can get worn out, right? Compassion itself, though, isn't worn out. And so Seshin brings us in a very extraordinary and very simple way to these elements, these fundamental aspects of who we are so that we can bring them out. So, shall we? <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.